From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, a formal welcome to Kabbalah Coffee. This is our first KNC after Passover. I hope everybody had a good Pesach. Um, it's nice to be back, right? It's nice. To, it's nice to hear. Yeah, it's nice to be back in 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 routine. Okay, so today's topic. If you saw my email that I sent out on Friday, I believe today's topic is all about love. And it's, the topic is about pure love. So I want to distinguish between, I want to distinguish between pure love and true love. And these are, you know, you could say that they're arbitrary in English, you know, just words that we're using to highlight some points. But nonetheless, I am using these words to highlight some points. So bear with me as I try to develop these ideas. So today's class is all about love and distinguishing between the notion of pure love and true love. So what is true love? Hey, Mariana, welcome. It's great to see you. Hi, thank you. Welcome, welcome. So we're talking about love and the difference between true love and pure love. So what is true love? True love, as we've explored many times in Kabbalah and Coffee, is a love that is not selfish, but but is rather selfless. So as opposed to love that's all about oneself, and about getting something from, let's say, the relationship. It's like, so what do I get out of it? Pure love is about giving. Sorry, forget pure. True love, because I want to distinguish between the two. True love is about giving. It's not about taking. So in Kabbalah, the energy of love, the energy of love is an energy that flows from inside, outside. The, the arrow, the directional arrow of that energy is pointed outward. It emanates from within to without, from person A toward person B. Any energy that's flowing inward is not deemed chesed. Chesed is love, but it's also about giving, it's it's about bestowing, it's about flowing outward. So true love is a love that's true to that concept, where it's about giving, and it's about bestowing, and it's about benefiting the other, It's about granting something, if you wish, to someone else. But it's not about taking. So the difference between true love and not true love is, as our sages write in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, they say there's two types of love. There's love that's contingent on something and love that's not contingent. So basically conditional love and unconditional love. So conditional love is I love because of something that I'm getting from that relationship. So therefore, as our sages say, literally the, the quote, I'll, I'll tell you verbatim the, the phrase of the Mishnah in Avot, in, in ethics, it says, Batla davar, batla ava. Once that condition, if that condition were to disappear, then the love would disappear. In other words, if the love is conditional, so let's say I love someone because, okay, let's use a silly example, right? I'm fr- forget about like romantic love and really. 
It's about friendship, because it's another form of love. It's a valid form of love that can, that can help us with this concept. Let's say I'm friends with somebody because they have an apartment in a really great part of town, right? And then I love hanging out in that part of town and then crashing at that person's, at that, at that person's apartment because it's super convenient. So I'm friends with that person. If my friendship never develops, never matures past that benefit for me, so the entire friendship then, if it, again, if it doesn't mature, then the entire friendship in my scenario that I'm giving you is based on that person's location, that person's apartment, the person's condo, whatever it is. But let's say they move, but then there's no love, there's no friendship anymore because I, I was only friends with you because of where you live. Now you don't live there anymore, done. By the way, a less maybe bizarre example of this, more relatable example is the friends that you meet in school. The, 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 the friends that you made while growing up in, in the town that you were in, or the friends that you made in, in uh, elementary school, or middle school, or high school, or in college, or in graduate school. Right? Those friends, did you remain in touch with them? Again, I'm not, this is not yes. like, yes. <laughs> Sandrine gives us a reason. Even across the world. Even across the world, good. Which, which tells me. From seventh grade. Ah, perfect. Sandrine has a friend from seventh grade. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the love and the friendship was not just conditional because you happened to be growing up with each other in the same place. But once you separated, then the love disappeared. It means that you grew the love or the love. Yes, may, may it started that way. You met the person because of, you know, random factors. But now that we have teenager, we talk about how we were teenagers. <laughs> so now you commiserate as raising teenagers, you commiserate with each other. Right, right, right. Yes, 100%. So there's different layers, right? So there's different layers of, of need. So I'm giving a simple one, correct, but you're saying it still might be based on something else, 100%. But if, if we just want to isolate it with this factor, let's say the factor is, I would say it's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a convention, it's um, not convenience, context. It's a very contextual relationship, right? I, I am friends with you because we went to the same school growing up. Boom, we're friends. The question is, when you're no longer going to the same school, no longer walking down the same halls, do you still pick up the phone? Do you still reach out? Now, if you, do, again, this is not, I'm not, this is not a, a fire, I'm not preaching, this is not a, be friends with whoever you want and not be friends with, this is, that's, I don't, it's not, I don't have a, I don't have an agenda, there's no agenda here. I'm just trying to describe what true love is. True love is a love that's not contingent, not dependent on, a factor, because when it's contingent on a factor, the moment the factor is no longer relevant, the love is no longer there. So if the whole relationship, the whole friendship is based on the fact that we, we sat next to each other in desks, right? We said we, uh, the desks were next to each other in school. The moment, but la dover, the moment we're no longer sitting next to each other, then but la ava, then there's no more love. If we still are friends, it means it's not about the, it's not about the desks. It's about the relationship. That's what Avot reminds us. That's what Pirkei Avot, by the way, Ethics of the Fathers. If you've, stu if you've never studied Ethics of the Fathers, I, 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 I'm going to say highly recommend. Highly recommend is a very weak term. I strongly, mm, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I, you you got to learn it. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Uh, Ethics of our Fathers. So if you've learned it before, I encourage you to continue to learn, to learn it again, to review it again. In fact, in Jewish tradition, we study Pirkei Avot this time of year, the six weeks between Pesach and Shavuot, 
we learn one, every week, a chapter a week, on tip, traditionally on Shabbat afternoon, but you can learn it anytime, a chapter a week in the well, seven weeks between Pesach and Shavuot, but you do it the Shabbos after Pesach, so you have six Shabbatot, you have six uh, Shabbats between the two for six chapters. It's a great thing to study this time of year to get ourselves kind of in an ethical, moral, um, you know, refi- refined space. Be that as it may, this Mishnah always sticks with me. The Mishnah gives two examples of what is love that's contingent and what's love that's non-contingent, i.e. unconditional love. So it says, what is, a contin- what is an unconditional love? I'll go the other way around. What's unconditional love, pure love? Uh, sorry, true love. True love is the love of David and Yehonatan, David and Jonathan. The Haftorah that we read yesterday in synagogues around the, in synagogues in the diaspora was uh, maybe even in Israel also, yeah, Machar Chodesh. It's, um, it was about, it's about the friendship between David and Jonathan. Jonathan was, Yehonatan, was the son of Saul, who was the king. And David was going to be the one to take over that kingdom and basically jump over or overcome. Hey, good to see you, Alex. Welcome. Come on in. So basically was going to leapfrog um, Yehonatan and take the throne. And yet they were best friends. So the Mishnah says the, the, this, is a, this is a relationship that had every reason not to survive, not to exist. This had every reason, this relationship had every reason to blow up, right? Because these were individuals who were rivals to the throne. And yet they experienced incredible friendship. Friendship that defied logic. Why? Because they were authentic friends. This is what we call true love. True love is not dependent on any factor. It's like, well, if you do this and if you do that, then I'll be, if, if we're not competing for the same job, then we'll be friends. No. True love is true love. True love is true love. True love is unconditional love. And it's about the other person. It's not about what I get out of it because that's conditional love. Conditional love means if you're satisfying a need for me or if I get what I want, then I'll love you. But that's, that's conditional love. That's not unconditional love. So unconditional love is what we call true love, and that is the pure, again, I don't use that word pure, it's a true expression of chesed. Chesed is, the energy of chesed is a flow of energy that that starts from within person A and flows out toward person B. It's not the flow or the desire for B to give to you if you're A, right? It's not like, well, I, I, I want this, so therefore I love, that's... That's not love, that's one thing that's consuming, right? Love is pure energy emanating from person A to per- person B without conditions, without demands. It is, a, a, it is a, a true love that emanates from one to the other and focuses on the other and does not think about self. That's true love. So I'll, I'll give you another example. So, and this relates to a mitzvah, a biblical mitzvah. The mitzvah is... Love your fellow as yourself. Right? The Torah says, Love, re'acha, means, could mean your friend, your fellow, your neighbor. Different translations. I'll use the word fellow. Love your fellow as yourself. So the Rebbe once spoke about this and said, it's interesting, right? Love your fellow as yourself. What happens, gave a scenario, what happens if you, sorry, what happens if your friend is thirsty and you are hungry. So your friend has plenty of food but no water. 
And you have plenty of water but no food. Theoretical scenario. So, yeah, your neighbor over there is thirsty and you are hungry. So what does it mean to love your fellow as yourself? What does that mean? A person might think, love your fellow as yourself means if I'm hungry, right, so I will endeavor that just like I figure out a way to get myself food, I'll figure out a way how to get, get you food also. But the problem is that person's not hungry, they're thirsty. So what does it really mean to love them as yourself? It means not actually to love them as yourself. Don't only give them what you need, give them what they need, just like you want what you need. In other words, don't look at the specific need, but the concept. Just like you want what you need, give them what they need, as opposed to giving them what you need. Does that make any sense? If you're... I still remember the Rebbe's words on this. If you give them food, because to you, food is what's necessary, but meanwhile, they're thirsty, you haven't at all fulfilled what they need. You haven't at all given them anything. It's like another form, getting back to love and relationships. So there's that, that uh, fairly famous book called uh, The Five Love Languages that speak about how people need different things or want different things from relationships. Some people, they, they, what they need is words of affection. Some people need acts of, uh, I forget the words, acts of generosity or something. Some people need um, physical touch. Some people need... Um, well, there's words of affirmation, there's acts of service, man, it's been a while, um, whatever, and, 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 and uh, um, physical touch, gifts. gifts, there you go, and there's one more that I can't remember. Be that as it may, it's not about, it's not about exactly the specifics, but here's the point. If for you, what you need, let's say, are words of affirmation, you need, you need to feel like affirmed. Right? That's what you need. And so therefore, because that's how you identify love, right? you identify love as someone who tells you how, how good you are, because that's how, what you need. And therefore, when you're in a relationship, so you give that to the other, but they don't need that. They don't, they don't at all need that. They need um, acts of, uh, what is it, acts of service or something? Yeah, acts of service. Acts of affection. Acts of affection, whatever it is. So, so then you're missing the boat. You're giving them what you need. You're not giving them what they need. So the point is, after that um, debacle of an example that I just gave, no, I'm not kidding, not debacle, but yeah, so after, I, uh, after that example, the, the point is like this, that if you're giving to someone what you need or what you want, then you're not really giving them anything, you're giving them, you're, it's just an expression of self. It's, it's, more of, it's more of self-expression versus selfless expression. It's more about you than it is about them. And that's not what we call true love. True love is really about the other. Is there any? concept similar to in spirituality where one can be doing out of an ego. So, you know, for spirituality we learned, you know, one yeah. can do it egotistically. To do what? True love? Spirituality. So oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so Don is asking a good question, which is, you know, there is a concept where a person could be very spiritual, but be doing so from a from a from an ego place, like um, the, the mystics write this phrase, three words, yesh misha oyev. There is still an I who loves, and there's referring to loving God. So you love God, but there's still an I who loves, there's still an ego there. It's not 
perfect, and, and this is an extremely high standard, because high, uh, high bar, because who's dissolving all traces of ego to dissolve in, in, in the oneness of God? That's a very high bar. Nonetheless, if we're just being honest here, one could say that when a person is in a state of divine love, it still might be because of, of how I feel about it. I feel excited about it. I feel good about it. So your question is, could you love selflessly also from a place of selfishness? That's your question. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> it's like, I, I know that the best form of love would be loving unconditionally and selflessly. So therefore, I want to tick that, check that box of I have an unconditional love relationship, so therefore I'm going to practice this. Okay, so I guess it's not like, it's not like the, the fullest form of that. Hey. But this is, this is, this is, quite, this is quite adorable. Who is this? I see some resemblance. She is adorable. This is our... This is our youngest Kabbalist right What's here. What's your name? Uh, Mane? Her name? Edison. Addison. Addison. Rachel. Rachel. Good to see you, Rachel. <laughs> Unbelievable. This is Kabbalah and coffee. Oh, this space? It's a co-working space. Some offices and desks. Yeah. So is it possible to love unconditionally? But is it possible to love unconditionally for an ego-driven purpose? I would say yes. Because to vanquish all traces of ego is extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. So even as we're trying to get to, the, to, to that truest place of love, are we really not going to feel anything? That's going to be a very... It's, that's really difficult to, to attain. So I would say, yeah, there might be some traces. Nonetheless, look... One thing is for sure, and, and, and this is a good opportunity to mention this disclaimer, it's never, I'm going to use a lot of double negatives, it's really never all or nothing. In other words, we shouldn't say that if we can't reach the purest form of love, then let's not try. We have to, the, the point is that it's, it's a striving, it's a growth experience. Look, let's just, let's just speak in, in very frank terms here. Most relationships begin very contextually. Most relationships, whether it's the friendship with the, the, your friend in seventh grade, seventh grade, you said? Seventh grade? Seven years old or seventh grade? Seventh grade. Seventh grade? Or whether it's, huh? <laughs> could be the same. Could be the same, right. Or, or it could be um, the, the person that you first fell in love with, right, romantically. Either way, oftentimes it is very contextual. In other words, it's because you have mutual friends or you were in the same place, you went to the same school and you met each other. The real question is, is that relationship going to grow beyond um, the original context or will it remain stuck in that original context? If it remains stuck in that context, it means that it hasn't really matured and that just makes it more susceptible. Again, I'm not judging here or there. It's, it's fine. No one has to, you don't have to have unconditional love with everybody you've ever met. I mean, that would be a lot of work to keep up those relationships. It's a case, Robert. It's a funny story, but we always joke about it. I sat next to her in class because she had a nice sweatshirt that I like. Oh, you see that? Perfect. Sandrine is giving a perfect origin story of this deep relationship now that's gone on for, for, for many years now. So it started... Sandrine says, she, so this friend that she met in seventh grade that, that she's still in touch with, even though they live across continents, 
um, in different continents across the uh, the Atlantic Ocean. I'm assuming, right? Yeah, France. France. Yeah, I, I just I just took the liberty of assuming that. So. Sandrine says she originally sat down next to her in the desk next to her because she liked her sweater. So there you go. It began with a sweater and it deepened, but that's a perfect example. It begins with a sweater, which is relatively, I mean, sweaters are nice, but like it's relatively, you know, on the level, on the depth chart of, of love and relationships, it's not the deepest thing. But that's how relationships... No, 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 but I'm not judging. I'm saying that's how every, but every relationship starts like that. You meet someone and they catch you for whatever reason, right? It's... Every relationship starts like that. The question is, not how did it start. The question is, how, how does it develop? What do you do next? Does it remain at that point? So let's say somebody, you know, they fall in love with somebody because physically they're very attracted to them. Okay, well, as I've said, I, can't, I don't even know how many times I've said this. The one constant about life, if we don't know anything else about, about life, the one thing we know about life is that the physical is going to change. There is zero question about that. No one ever looked the same at 5, 15, 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, I'm going to go, 75, 85, 95, 105, 115, 125. Never happened. Please got to 120, right? Never happened. It's not shayich. Shayich is Hebrew for possible. It's not possible. So if the relationship, so let's say you fall in love with someone, oh, highly attracted, physically highly attracted to them. Great. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. But if you never develop the relationship deeper than that, then the question is, well, what happens when the looks change? Now what? Now what happens? What happens when the physical is not the same way it was before? Butla davar, butla ava. When that thing changes, well, what happens with the love? Dr. Maxi. Thank you, Rabbi. So could it be in Sandrine's case that the friend's sweater is what initially attracted her to your point as the relationship develops, then as an example, you could find out that it was your, both your grandmother's favorite color and that was the grandmother you were very closest to, et cetera, et cetera. And could that be that, you know, on the one hand, yeah, it seems rather superficial and not very deep on the depth chart. On the other hand, if you use it as an opportunity for relationship development, then you get to those deeper levels and find where that connectivity is. Yes, 100%. And whether it's about because the sweater triggers a memory of something that feels good that the, for both parties they have in common, or whether that was just, let's say, a random, you know, once, once a, a one-time deal, but that stirs a conversation. And now two people who wouldn't necessarily have talked to each other otherwise, now they begin hanging out, and now they begin to realize that they have so much in common, or that they grow together and they become deep friends However that journey unfolds, once it moves past that to a deeper place, that's where the magic happens. And again, I'm not suggesting that every relationship has to do that or that if it doesn't do that, then somehow it's not a good relationship. This is not a judgment. This is not, there's no judgment here. The point is simply, and we all have this in our lives, we have relationships that are um, relatively superficial or contingent on something. It's more of a transactional relationship. Like This is what I get out of it, so therefore we have a relationship. But beyond that, it's not like particularly deep or, you know, um, significant, and then we have relationships that are much deeper. The example that the Mishnah gives, I did half. So the, the example of unconditional love is David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan had every reason, this is like the story of King David before he was king. Jonathan was the son, I mentioned this before, but I'm just going to reiterate, reset this. Jo Jonathan, a.k.a. Yehonatan, he was the son of the king, King Saul. And <coughs> 
David was going to take the throne from that family. And he did. And yet they remained best of friends. They remained, they remained lifelong friends to the very end, despite the natural reasons that they had to be rivals and to be against each other. Why? The reason is simple. The reason is because their friendship was not based on who got the throne, who became king, who had power, who didn't have power, who ruled who. It wasn't about that. It was about a deep friendship. So what, ha- what started as perhaps a conventional relationship where, you know, contextual relationship, I, you know, we have similar interests, grew to a deep relationship where even though they had every reason to fight with each other and turn against each other, they didn't. They remained best of friends, dedicated and loyal to each other, despite all of the chaos that was swirling around them. The other example is Amnon and Tamar. Amnon and Tamar are the other example that's brought in the Mishnah. Amnon and Tamar were half-siblings. They were both the descendants of King David. And so a half-brother and a half-sister. And the story in the books of the prophets goes that Amnon lusted after his half-sister. Which, of course, is a forbidden, incestuous relationship. We actually just read about it in yesterday's Torah portion. In Akhari, it's a forbidden relationship. A half-sibling is uh, not, not kosher. So what happens is, but he still, he still has this lust for her. And the story goes that he basically found a way to set it up where he and her were alone in a, in a, in a space, in a house, or whatever it was. And then he physically forced himself upon her and raped her. Salted her, raped her. Horrific story. And what happens, the, 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 the scripture tells us that after that, after that episode, he despised her, he hated her more than originally he lusted after her. In other words, his despise, he despised her more than he lusted after. The psychology of, I don't know if it's an abuser or of a criminal, I don't know what you would call this, this person, this, the psyche, I, I don't know the exact terminology here, but the psyche is that he desired her, again, in, the, in a very unhealthy way, and then once he had her, so to speak, which I don't even like that term, that's a horrible term, then he turned, it turned in, in such an ugly way, I mean, it, it manifested in an ugly way, but then it turned the other way. Ultimately, by the way, he faced exceptionally harsh consequences for that, and um, he lost his life because of that episode. But getting back to the story, this is an example that the Mishnah gives of a love, I don't even know if the word is love, a lust, a desire, something on his side, nothing to do with her, on his side that was so contingent, it was so based on one thing that once that thing was satisfied, so to speak, then that was it. And, and the, and the Rebbe explains that the Mishnah is giving an example of a relationship that should have been unconditional. They were half-siblings. They were family. It should have been unconditional. And yet, he, because of, of how twisted it was, he basically distorted it to the point that he took something unconditional and made it conditional, made it so... It's not like conditional. It's so ugly and horrific. He took something so, so, so true and beautiful and devolved it to such an ugly place. As opposed to a situation where you could take something uh, relatively trivial and contextual and grow it into something deep and meaningful. So you can, you can move it both directions. You could take something 
oh, hey, I was sitting next to the person in school and now we're best of friends. Or we could take something we're family and totally mess that up. It really can work both ways, yeah. Um, Rabbi, could you um, extend there, this to part of the explanation for why uh, arranged marriages uh, superficially so exist? I, what I'm thinking in that context, there's many reasons, but what I'm thinking in your context is that perhaps one of the reasons is that there is a lesson to be learned that it is not about the triviality or the rationality as long as one is superficially you know, aligned um, with, with family interests. Right. That it's not about the, the rationality of the mind I'm, I'm attracted to this person because A, B, and C, but the opposite of rationality is ultimately essentiality. Very, very interesting, very interesting point that you're making. Um, and I think there's some truth to that. So just, just to, to, to make sure that everybody heard this. So Alex is asking, is this the, a concept or is this the rationale behind the concept of arranged marriages. Now, the word, the phrase arranged marriages, we have to be, we have to, we have to better, well, before I get into the analysis of that. So he said, because look, what you're doing is you're taking out some of the superficiality and you're saying, look, as long as you can reasonably, you know, as long as you're reasonably attracted to the other person, then make it work. As you can, if you're working to make it work, right, then why get caught up in all of the trivialities that anyway, relegate the relationship to something superficial. Let's jump in. If we're committed to, to getting some, somewhere deeper, let's get somewhere deeper. And, and there is a lot of truth to that. But let me just clarify. So when we talk about arranged marriages, that could mean a lot of different things along a lot of different cultures. Anywhere from forced marriages to a situation where two people are meeting each other for the first time via an introduction through, a, through like a mutual friend. So, and, and those, I, I would consider all of those, and, and anywhere in between, I would consider all that to be under the, under the, uh, the guise of, or under the, the category of arranged marriages, because I'm thinking of arranged, assisted, assisted <laughs> right, assisted marriage. So, so really, arranged is, is a little bit of a, of, of a vague term. So, in Judaism, there's no such thing as forced marriage, not from the guy's side, not from the girl's side, you can't, you cannot force a marriage. That is against Jewish law. In fact, we learn this from the biblical story of Isaac and Rebekah, where Eliezer, if you recall, Eliezer, Abraham's servant, goes to find a wife. He's the, the first matchmaker, the first shatkin that we find in, Jew, in, in, in history, in, at least in, in, in the Torah. He goes to find a wife, to find a young girl suitable for, for, um, for Isaac, for Yitzchak. And he finds this girl, her name is Rivka, Rebekah, and she's so kind, and she's so generous, and he meets the family. And ultimately, they say, <coughs> when they're deciding whether or not we should go ahead, they say, let's ask her. We have to ask her. Does she consent, yes or no? And this teaches us that there cannot be marriage without consent. There is no such, in Judaism, I can't speak to other, other you know, communities or whatever, but in Judaism, there's no such thing as a forced marriage. Now, a lot, with that being said, there are still various degrees of, of shachin, of matchmaker roles within Judaism. So back in the day, you might have a, a more heavy-handed 
role of the Sharchin, where the Sharchin, Sharchin again is matchmaker. The Sharchin or the families would say, essentially these two are earmarked for each other. I mean, unless they absolutely refuse, but this is the intention. And then there might be pressure to go along with it, even though you can't force it, but there might be some sort of family or social pressure to go along with it, which could backfire or it could be fine. Um, in the Chabad system, you don't, it's, that's not how it works. I can speak to my own, my own experiences. So typically, the role of a Shadchan is simply to suggest names, not just names, people, right, for either party to date. So how do you meet, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you meet someone? What's, a, what's an effective way of meeting someone that might, may, may or may not be compatible? It's good to have someone that knows a lot of people. So Shadchanim, matchmakers, would, um, the, the, why would they be called matchmakers? Because, or why are they called matchmakers? Again, in, the, in Chabad circles, because they happen to know and meet with a lot of young men and young women and happen to get a sense of the energy of various people and say, you know what? I think you would be good for this. I met my wife, not through a formal shadcha, not through a formal matchmaker. We actually happened to be working in the same building upstairs. In, I've told this story before. We were working in 770 upstairs in the, in the offices over there. And uh, a friend of mine who was married, recently married to a friend of Leah's, so he said, she's like, hey, would you consider going? And they kind of, you know, they, they, he spoke to me, she spoke to her. The next thing you know, there we are. So you had so met at the office. We had met. You had met. But we had not schmoozed. In other words, they met, uh, and they were introduced by... Interesting. Right. Right. No, no, no. So the, so the thing is like this. The thing is that it was, again, I don't want to make this about me. I'm just, the, the, but, the, but it came up, or maybe I brought it up. I don't remember how. At this, I think I brought it up. So I did make it about me, but I'll quickly move off it. The point is that, yes, we had seen each other, but it wasn't like we weren't, it wasn't going to spontaneously turn into dating. It was... Well, and not typical. It was typical in a Chabad environment where, you, yeah, where you're, you're, everything is uh, everything's kosher. I mean, everything. So, so the point is that the matchmaker is kind of like the, um, the go-between. It also, there's a, there's a few roles that the, that the shachan plays. Again, in other circles and even other Hasidic groups, it might be a little bit more, for lack of a better term, heavy-handed. But in Chabad circles, it's very, uh, it could be as... As, as, as helpful or as, 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 say? Different flavors. Different flavors. So somebody, it's a continuum. But I do agree with you that in, so in a, one more thing, in Chabad circles, typically the dating period is very short. Not only Chabad circles, in many Jewish Orthodox circles, it's very short. I'm talking about, I mean, we dated maybe three weeks, four weeks before we got engaged. And like in the world, there's a four, three, four weeks and then you get engaged? How do you even know the person? The shachan also, right, and both families look into the other family. You do some research before the date, before, before the first date in this, in this system. And you basically check. I mean, you never know, right? But you, you look into it and see like, okay, is there a compatibility? Are they coming from the similar place, similar background, similar interests, similar values? And then each day could go anywhere from two, three, four, up to eight, nine hours, and you're talking, and the focus is on marriage. The focus is not on hanging out having fun. It's a very focused thing. And you know also, getting back to what Alex said, because what Alex said is true, and that is that knowing 
that the superficial is superficial and is not going to make a long-term relationship, that that's built on, on the work that's done, right? It's, it's not the work that's done before the marriage. It's the work that's done after. I mean, it doesn't have to be after. Whatever, but it's, it's, the, it's a lifelong work knowing that. So then, okay, so that, I mean, how long do you need to, to, to figure that out? You know, I mean, again, you could argue that you, did, you do need more time, and that's fine. Um, but I would, I would venture to say that most of what you learn about the person, you can figure out in the first few weeks, if you're really focused on that. I mean, do you really need, I mean, how long do you really need? What else are you going to learn? I mean, like, I guess you could learn more. You could always learn more. But then, and, in the double save, then there's no end. So but, yeah. So in the Chabad community, people are doing that, going from three weeks here, three weeks. It's like when a person decides, I want to get married now, then you're really serious and you're not... Really yeah, yeah, yeah. Tip, again, everyone can do whatever they want. There's no rule. But typically in the, in the community, it's not casual dating or it's not multiple dating at the same time, multiple people at the same time. Oh, yeah, that I know what I mean. It's committed. Yeah, when you're ready to get married, yeah. then, you, then you're dating for marriage, finding your bashert. So I remember feeling like I don't know everything about this person, but I feel good enough and confident enough to want to get to, to want to live my life with this person. That's, 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 I think, you know, what, what, what is love? We've been exposed to a very Hollywood, I don't know if we call it Hollywood, I'm just, I'll just call it a Hollywood version of love, which is all about like a romantic fairy tale. The problem with that is that it's a romantic fairy tale. In other words, that's not real. Yes, that's part of the experience, but that's not, that never take, that, that doesn't, that's not a, a 50, 60 year thing. That's, that's not, it's not possible. Well, it's also helpful it doesn't last 50, 60 years. In the Habas situation, that it gets, the expectations are the same at the beginning from each side. You know, come, each side comes in with the known. Correct. Right? Yeah, so what Donna's saying, just so for the benefit of everybody online, is that the expectations are the same, right? Now, it could be expectations are different. So in Chabad, at least when I was, this is, I mean, I, I've been married for almost, uh, hold on, my son is going to turn 18, so yeah, about 19 years. So I don't know how things, I can't vouch for sure how things are now, because it's 20 years later. But 20 years ago, the big question was, shlichas or business? That was the question, for, mainly for the guy. And for, no, for both sides. Like, do you want to be a rabbi and rabbi in a community, or do you want to do anything else? A lawyer, a doctor, a businessman, a teacher, like whatever it is. Like, what's your, what's your general career path? Because those are two different things. And, right, and within the Chabad community, those are, those are like the, the two buckets, if you will. So if, you, if the guy wants to be a rabbi in a community and she wants to just live a comfortable life, when I say comfortable, and not live the rabbits in life, right? A public life, thank you. Public life, then that's prob- that, that, that date is probably not going to can't say it's not going to happen, but it's less likely that they would go out because they know that they're not necessarily looking for the same thing even before they meet each other for the first time. This is where the parents help vet, and, the, and even the, not without the, without the input of, of the individual. The individual has to know themselves, and they have to, the parents have to know who they are, not think, this is a challenge also that happens in the system. Every system has challenges. Challenge sometimes is the parents think they know what the kid wants, and they're choosing what they want their kid to want, but it's not necessarily what their kid wants. When I say choosing, again, no one's choosing a spouse. You're, the most you're choosing is the person that they're going to meet on a date. That's the extent of it. No one's forcing a marriage um, at all. 
But anyway, that's, that's a little bit about the system. But you are starting within that community, within the Chabad community, that's my experience, you are starting within a, within a, within a familiar framework. A pre-selected framework. But again, it's no different than I once, we once had a talk at the old building, and this was um, Rabbi Schusterman's stepmom, and she spoke about this by giving the following analogy, which I love to this day. I will never forget this analogy. She says, imagine you're going to a new city. Imagine you move to a new city, and you suddenly develop a toothache, and you need a, a dentist. Ne- you don't have a dentist. You have a dentist back home in your old city, but not in your new city. You don't know a dentist. So she says, how are you going to find a dentist? Are you A, scenario A, are you going to go to a bar and sit at the bar and start and look for somebody that's attractive and then have a few dates? Huh? With a nice smile. Perfect. Right? And then schmooze them up and then start dating. And then six months, a year, five years in, you'll pop the question... By the way, are you a dentist? Or will you ask for a recommendation for a dentist? Why is marriage, why is love and marriage left to any less of specificity? Why for love and marriage do we roll the dice and say, well, let me go to a bar, or whatever, it doesn't have to be a bar. Let me go somewhere and let me find somebody that looks attractive and, and then maybe they have the same interests that align with me. That seems like a very capricious, is that the right term? A very... Um, a very um, random type of way to do it. Again, I'm not trying to critique society, just saying that that's the rationale behind a, behind a system of, of, of shaduchim where you find someone who is at least more or less a dentist or on the same page on some level. Makes sense? To me, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes it easier also. If you're seeing a dentist, how many office visits do you have to know if you want to stay with this dentist? You with me on this? If you, if you don't know if they're a dentist and you're afraid to ask the question because you're afraid that they're going to say no, but you really like them anyway, but you really are hoping they're a dentist, I hope the analogy, I hope the analog is clear on this, right? I, whatever. I've had many, met many people who dated for years before they found out, before they had a conversation and found out, you know what? We don't at all have the same vision for the future. And that was like two or three years into a relationship, if not more. And, and it, Yes, there's fun and growth along the way, sure, but if you're looking for a dentist, I don't know, look for a dentist. I mean, find a dentist. But once you find a dentist, how many office visits do you need before you know if they're the right dentist for you? I mean, could something change? Anything could change. But like, you don't need to to go to a dentist for, you know, two years. Whatever. All right. How, what are the reasons and how does it transpire, a divorce? How does divorce transpire? Divorce transpires like, like, like any other situation could transpire. Pe- pe- um, any number of reasons. Just because there is a different, say different, because a relationship starts off in a certain way, in a certain context, or because a group has, you know, ascribes to a certain set of beliefs or, or tries to ascribe to a certain set of beliefs. It does not make anyone immune to any of the realities of, of, of life. So personalities and relationships are always a complicated and evolving dynamic. And so any, any um, reason, when I say reason, any um, scenario that could lead to divorce in... Any community could also lead to divorce in 
in a Chabad community. So there's, there's, no, there's no immunity to the human, to the human condition. That's, uh, that's an important and thing to remember. I mean, there's no kind of state on the... Divorce is divorce. I don't think there's a... St- there's, I mean, I hope, hopefully there's no stigma. Um, that, w- that would be... But again, it's up to... If people choose to look... At, it's, it's, that, that would be another you know, human frailty, human flaw. To, look, to, to, to stigmatize someone else because of a relationship that, uh, that, 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 that ended. That would be, that would say more about the person doing the judging than necessarily about the person in the relationship or who was in the relationship. But again, just because a group of people studies certain texts or ascribes to certain, or strives for certain values doesn't mean that any, any individual is immune to the human condition. As I spoke yesterday at Shul, the moment we put a halo on ourselves is the moment we're really in trouble. The moment any time a person thinks, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm impervious to, to that sort of thing. That's the, that's that, then you have to worry. That, now you have to really worry when somebody believes that they're you know, beyond human frailty. Okay, so all of this was a discussion about true love. So in short, true love is all about unconditional love, giving love. It's about the other. It's not about self. What is pure love? Because today's class is really, all this was the setup. What's pure love? Pure love is different than true love. Now, again, I said this all the beginning of the class. You might say these semantics, it's just words, and that could be true. But forget, it doesn't have to be about the words, but about the concept. So what I'm calling pure love, what is pure love? Pure love is radically different than, than true love. In fact, one could argue that pure love is the opposite of true love. What is pure love? Pure love is a love, a chesed, that emanates from the person that is so pure that the other person almost can't relate to it. In other words, it's so pure, your love, that the other person has difficulty relating to it because it's so much you. So what I said before about love languages, right? So it's about true love is not loving them like you want to be loved, but pure love would almost be that. Pure love would be your definition. Okay, let me see why myself. It would be imposing almost my definition of love or my form of love on the other person. Pure love is a pure expression of my love that I'm directing toward the other. And in most cases of pure love, many cases, maybe most cases, maybe all cases, the other one will not have a way, necessarily a healthy way of receiving it or of of um, assimilating it, of incorporating it, because it's so pure to the giver that it, it's pure to the giver. The, the, the pureness of the giver, the less pure probably it will be to the receiver because it's, it's on that side. So here's an example. So let's say your child is turning five. Okay? No. Let's go younger. Let's say your child is turning three. And what they love is a lollipop. Remember when you were three? Ah, not everyone loves lollipops, but whatever. Let's just say, yeah, remember when you were three, you you loved lollipops? Good. So all you want for your birthday is one of those big lollipops, you know, the ones with like the colors, the swirl, like that whole multicolored rainbow thing. Got that for one of our kids, for his upsharenish. I think it was Shalom, our mitzvah boy. We got him a, a, um, a big lollipop for his upshernish. By the way, haircut, upshernish is the first haircut at three. Haircut and lollipops? <laughs> not, just saying, 
not a great combo. So he had to like duck and bob, you know, while trying to eat that lollipop. Anyway, the point is like this. Imagine if you give that kid, three-year-old, you approach the three-year-old boy, let's say at the option, she had that first haircut, and, and you want to give that, that, that kid a gift, and you give that child, try to think of a sophisticated gift that the child won't relate to, a $100 bill. $100. What do I do with this? Right? Can I eat it? Can I taste good? No, it's $100. What do I do with that? Or imagine you give, uh, you know, Israeli bonds. I don't know, just trying to think of something like bar mitzvah kids, right? Get Israeli bonds. Do they, do they know what it is? I mean, you explain it to them, but like, so, so it's, it's, a, it's a question of this. You know, pure love is the love that is purely yours to give. You're giving love as defined by you. This is what's dear to me. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving you something precious to me. A hundred dollars. A check for a thousand dollars. Here's a check for a thousand dollars. It's so precious, so dear to me. I'm giving it to you, three-year-old, because one day you'll appreciate it. But right now, imagine What's the most sophisticated food? Let's think of sophisticated foods. I don't want to get into wine. Oh, speaking of wine. Wine and cheese this Tuesday night. Join us for this event. If you're not yet signed up, join us Tuesday night, 7.30. Wine and cheese experience. It's going to be amazing. Okay. Huh? You like that segue. You see how that works? Everyone say hi to Jonathan. Jonathan is our dude. He runs everything behind the scenes. Jonathan is the man. Okay. So here's the deal. Imagine, what's the sophisticated food? Like caviar? What's more, I don't know, caviar, I feel like caviar was 20 years ago. Sushi. Sushi. I don't know. Uh, what do you think? Caviar. Caviar. Truffles. What are truffles? The, um, like a mushroom thing? Fungi from the ground. Let's say you give a three-year-old, I like that because I've never used that example before. I've used sushi and wine and, 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 and other stuff before. And, and caviar. Truffles. And also... Are truffles expensive? Labor intensive. Yes. Truffles are expensive. They're exclusive. Okay, good. You can't get them. You Perfect. You need... Perfect. Right. So let's say you got... You get a, physically, you can't get them. Do you get a box of truffles? How does that work? No, you don't get a box no, of truffles. It's, That's chocolate. It's, it's a physical thing to find them. That's very, it's a whole experience. Yeah. They have dogs that find yeah. the truffles. I heard. Right. Okay. And now I'm just I'm recalling <laughs> tidbits that I've heard over the years. All right. So let's say you bring this kid at his upshernish, at his first haircut, three years old, three-year-old boy. You bring him a truffle, say, I, where did truffles grow? Do we know? France. 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 Sandrine. <laughs> truffles. I don't know. All right. So let's say, I went to France. I flew to France. You tell the kid, I flew to France to get you these exclusive truffles. These are priceless. These are priceless. These are thousands of dollars of truffles. And I'm, I'm giving you the truffle. Kid takes one look at it. I can't, I don't, I can't, to be honest, I can't picture it. But I'm just, imagine, whatever I'm imagining in my brain right now. The kid takes one look at it, smells it, maybe tastes it, and says, Feh, what, do you hate me? You don't like me? You're not my friend? Well, why you give me something terrible? Booby fries. Yeah, what is, who does that? You're giving me something bad? Who does that? What's going on? So what's, in, what's, what's important to recognize here is that the person giving, right, is giving something very valuable, imminently valuable, right? Something that's very 
precious and something that's very coveted and very, you know, people would, would, would you know, would, would, would love this. But this child can't relate to it. So pure love is, here's how I'm going to frame it. Pure love is so pure that typically the recipient cannot, doesn't have the tools to, to deal with it. It's so pure, in fact, that it could, go, it could seem like it's not love at all. Yes. Are you with me on this? It's so pure that it seems like it's not love, like it's the opposite. Chapter 26 of Tanya. He talks about struggles, challenges, life challenges. And he talks about reframing challenge. And he says one way to reframe it, and it, this is one of the most difficult chapters, not to understand, but to really understand, to live with. Chapter 26 of Tanya is one of the most difficult chapters, in my opinion, one of the most difficult chapters of Tanya to actually live with and live by and assimilate into our lives. Because in chapter 26 of Tanya, he says that when a person is going through physical hardship, when I say physical hardship, I mean like, like practical life challenges, that one way to get through it is to meditate on the fact that this is actually God's greatest kindness. Listen to this. You're like, what? I, I literally disclaimed, I literally told you this is the hardest chapter, in my opinion. He says that, this, that, that what feels painful, the challenge, the physical challenge, is coming from the highest level of divine kindness and love that's so high that it manifests as something painful. You say, well, how does that make any sense? Because the deeper the, the deeper the chesed is, the deeper the kindness is, the more pure it is above, the less relatable it is below. And when that descends below, when that pure chesed comes below, pure kindness, pure love comes below, it manifests, or it's received as the opposite of kindness. So then what's the one second, one second, one second. Hold on, hold on, hold on. This is what he says. There's two realities. There's Alma de Iskasia and Alma de Iskalia. There's the hidden realm and the revealed realm. The hidden realm is a realm that we can't relate to. Spiritual realms. The revealed realm is what we can relate to, what we see, touch, and feel. He says, when, when chesed, when you have pure kindness that comes from above, unfiltered kindness, it's like the truffle, where when, when you get the truffle, you think that it's child abuse. It's like truffles? You're feeding this to me, right? You hate me. Why are you punishing me? Why are you hurting me? That's what the child's mind is saying. Why are you hurting me? He says, similarly, when we feel like we're, get, we're, we're getting, right, clep, right? We're getting, um, we're getting hit, so to speak, right? We're getting, it's not, it's not comfortable. Life is not comfortable. He says, that, one way of reframing it. Again, it's one of the most difficult chapters to actually live by. One way of reframing it is to, is to meditate on the fact that this is actually coming from the deepest level of divine kindness, which is so pure that it manifests in a way that we can't relate to it, and therefore it feels painful. That's what he says. And we ask Hashem that we have, we ask God Almighty that instead of giving us pure kindness that we can't relate to, that we have either, one of two things, either he filter it in a way that we can feel it as kindness. And add some sugar to it. Remember that song? Just a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Right? So, number one, add some sugar to it. Filter it so that we can, we can tolerate it, number one. Number two, bring Mashiach. Because when Mashiach comes, we'll be able to see the, re- the hidden realms. We'll be able to appreciate 
the growth or the blessing or the kindness that was embedded in that, in the negative stuff or in the stuff that we translate as negative. Chapter 26 of Tanya, he encourages us, if we can, and I'm not saying that we can, I'm just saying if we can, to have another look at the challenges of life and to see them as divine kindnesses that were unfiltered, that are unfiltered, that are not translated down into our definition of goodness and are pure divine experiences that therefore feel beyond us, not just beyond us transcendent, but even the opposite of kind, the opposite of, of good. And, and the question might be, well, if God is really loves us, why doesn't he give us stuff that we, that we, do, that we do get? And I, I understand that. That's a valid question. That's what we ask God to do. But nonetheless, this is a way of, of, of framing it. Back to our point, pure love is a love that is so pure to the one who is doing the loving that oftentimes the recipient of the love cannot, um, in a healthy way, understand it, relate to it, or accept it because it's too pure. It's like the example that I've given many times. If like the, uh, Albert Einstein is teaching a bunch of fifth graders, probably they're not going to understand the lesson, right? If he's teaching on his level, sorry, if he's te- pure Einstein, Einstein, whatever, pure Einstein brain being transmitted to the fifth graders, they're not going to get anything. They're not going to understand it. In fact, they'll probably feel like this is torture and a waste of their time. Right? Rather be in recess, what are you doing wasting our time and giving us stuff that's like totally out there? Rabbi? Yeah. I mean, this discussion of pure love to me seems the exact opposite of the selfless love. It seems like selfish love because it's what's dear to, to Hashem or to an individual person right. is what's given out. Right. Right. That's why I said, I said that true, that pure love is different and perhaps even the opposite of true love. I said that as I was introducing pure love, exactly. In other words, I don't disagree with you. True love is about not thinking about yourself. It's not about you, it's about them. Pure love is your pure, it's, it's you being put out there. So it's unfiltered, it's uncut, it's untempered, it's un, there's no gvura in that experience. It's pure chesed. Gvura, right, that gvura restraint. It's not chesed to the recipient, but it's not about the recipient. Right, right. It's about the pure, right, correct. In other words, once you hear the definition of true love, then you turn back and say, pure love, how is that even love? I understand exactly what you're saying. That, that, all that tells me is that I did a decent job of setting this up. But the point is that it still could be called chesed in the sense that it's a pure expression of you. Of you. It, it's it. pure you. It's it. p- you're putting your, your energy out there as you are. You're not taking into consideration the other, what they need, how they're going to accept it, how they're going to feel about it. It's not about them. And you say, well, how's that chesed? I get that. From a perspective of true love, that's not at all. It's the opposite. But from a perspective of pure love, it's pure chesed. Pure, see, true love, true love means the first love that we talked about today. True love is when you have chesed with gevura. Gevura is that restraint and withholding because you're giving what they need, which means that you're filtering, you're, you're cutting down you know, your definition of chesed to fit theirs. That's gvura. You're withholding, you're restraining, you're giving. And for a good cause. Pure chesed is not true. Is not, pure love is not true love. It's pure. It's not true. Different words. So Again, in, in English, semantics, yeah. When I went to New Jersey for Pesach to be with my grandchildren, 
Noah is three and a half. He's nice. at that age. A little contrary. Right. A year ago, I was making matzo balls, and he, they, his parents got him this thing where you can stand on and you're safe, and you can watch the cooking. And so I was making nelaf, and he was helping roll them. And and I was very excited about doing it again with him this year because I don't see them that much. He didn't want to do it. Wasn't I mean, interested. The right. best of me wanted that experience with him. That was pure love. Right. He wasn't into it. Now. Did he eat them? Yes. Did he love them? Yes. Sure. But, you know, it was... It can, was I, can I repeat that story? Sure. So Nina said, so she visited her three-year-old grandson just now for Pesach. And all she wanted to do was roll matzo balls. To get, not all she wanted to do, but what part of the experience was to, to cook together. Last year when he was two and a half, he was interested. This year he wasn't so interested. So that now, now you have a dilemma. You didn't say this. I'm putting words in, 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 in your experience. Now you have a dilemma. Dilemma is, do I force what I want the experience to look like on him, or do I, I let go and say, you know what? Let's do what he wants to do. And so you know that the way, the true love is the latter, not the former. But pure love would be, this is who I am, this is how I am, and this is, this is what's, radi- what's radiating from me. So I just want to um, clarify. Pure love is not um, the way we're defining it now. It's not devious. It's not, um, it's not malicious. It's not, um, it's not um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, manipulative. It's not, it's pure. It's like, it's like purely, it's like precocious almost. It's like pure energy that's emanating. It's it's innocent almost, but it's not taking into consideration the other one. But it's pure. And, and, and oftentimes, when that's the case, I mean, if everyone's compatible 100%, then it's great, right? If you love, make, if you're like, oh my gosh, just make matzo balls. And they're like, oh, I want to make matzo balls with you. Then there's no, then there's no conflict. Then it's, it's perfectly seamless. But what happens sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, is when it's your pure expression, and they're not on the same, if, if, if and when they're not on the same page, well, then you have an experience where they, even if they went along with it, right, then they might be like, like, you know, inside a little bit, you know, not so happy with the experience, even if they don't say anything, but um, it's not going to necessarily feel like the greatest experience. And it might feel, you know, even in a, in a worst case scenario, it might feel like torture to have to do this. Well, so one party's feeling like this is the greatest experience ever. The other party's feeling like it's torture. And again, bring this back to chapter 26 of Tanya, he says, if, you understand, if, if, if that is a reasonable analogy, then maybe, maybe, maybe we can have a similar meditation when we're going through life's challenges. I understand that we can ask, but if God can do anything, why can't God make it good, even revealed? I get it. I, we're not going to answer that question. right? That's, that's, that's the question that, we, that we're waiting for the answer for with clear blessings and Mashiach. That's the only answer for that is a solution. But the meditation is when I'm going through challenge, what he suggests. Again, it's, uh, it's very difficult. But if we can understand how on one side, they think it's amazing and this side thinks that it's, that it's torture, okay, so then maybe this is a truth in life in a larger sense as well, that when we're going through challenges, on the divine side, it's actually a blessing. It's just one that we have no tools right now to relate to yeah. But if we do have that meditation, then it seems we're saying to ourselves, it's not going to change, and I can, and the one hope is Mashiach. No, what the, the the good question. The the outcome of that would be, 
I recognize that everything that happens, that everything that comes from God, it, it, okay, it, here's how the formula works. If I believe that God is good and God is all-powerful, then I believe that everything that comes from God is good. So I, how come, I, how come this is happening to me and it's not good? So either God is not good or cue up this meditation. That coming from God, it is good. But truffles to a three-year-old, that is incompatible. The three-year-old say it's not good. Matzah balls, for whatever reason, at this stage and age, for at that moment in time, because, you know, the next day it might have been fine. But, like, that, at that moment we're not, was not the most enjoyable experience. So, so that, and so what's my request? I do two things. Number one, I accept it, on the one hand, as coming from God, and therefore, ultimately, on God's end, being an expression of goodness. And I ask God that, without a, manip- a manipulative request, not like, if you really love me, then get, but God also give me, trans- help me translate that pure kindness into a kindness that I can relate to, so that I can feel good about your kindness as well. And that's the request. Give me revealed kindness, reveal blessings. Sometimes I'll write, you know, like, uh, requ- um, like you know, in, in language, uh, the Rebbe would write also, I got it from the Rebbe, like, we don't ask only for blessings, but reveal blessings. Because blessings, everything's a blessing on some level. We don't want just, just want blessings. We want revealed blessings, i.e. blessings that we understand as blessings. Even though, according to Tanya, that would mean that it's going through a filter, which means that necessarily it's a lower level. If the three-year-old is going to appreciate it, it's probably not so healthy. Right? Okay, your mileage may vary. Some, not all three-year-olds, but it's probably going it, to... It may not be as... I don't know if truffles are healthy, but theoretically, right? It's, it's not, it may not be as, it's, not, it's certainly not going to be as sophisticated. So we're essentially asking God, we, we, we will forego the higher level to get the lower level that we can then appreciate. And that's a valid request. Mashiach is when we'll appreciate even the higher level. That's when you have the marriage, that's the maturity, if you will, where the child becomes an adult and says, you know what? I actually do like truffles. I see all along the truffles. Again, this is not, I've said this probably six or seven times. I'll say it one last time. This is not an easy chapter. It's not an easy concept. Um, it's something that I struggle with, you know, and how to, how to actually, you know, um, integrate. And because and, you're going through that moment, the last thing that most of us are thinking are this is, some divine kindness you got here, right? That's not the first reaction. Nonetheless, it's what he says. So what's the point here? True love is a love that is about the other. Pure love is a love that's about the expression of the one who's doing the loving. And are they different? Yes. Are they opposites? They can be opposites, right? Are we making a judgment which one is better? Well, from the perspective of the recipient, true love is better. From the perspective of a pure expression of the love itself, pure love is better is more pure. I don't know if it's better or not, it's, it's, it's more pure. The reason why, why we're doing all of this is to get back into our text, and we're gonna do, we have, we have now a good, a good span of about 10, 11 minutes, and we're gonna get inside our text. And our text is gonna tell us that this is exactly what happens on Rosh Hashanah and uh, the rest of the year. And when I say Rosh Hashanah, I mean the whole high holiday season, Rosh Hashanah, 10 days of Tshuva, Yom Kippur, that, that time, I'll just call it Rosh Hashanah. That time of year versus what happens every day. On Rosh Hashanah, God gives pure love. But we can't do anything with that. The rest of the year, every day, we ask 
in our prayers that God give us true love. Translate it down to something that I can actually enjoy. Don't leave it theoretically. Don't leave it as something painful that if I was only mature enough, I would appreciate. Give me something that I can immediately relate to. Give me the candy, essentially, is what we're asking of God. Uh, oh, perfect. Pass this down. And Sandrine, it looks like you have that. All right. We are on page. I'm going to pull this up online also. We are on page 280. 280. This is a, just an absolutely magnificent um, piece of the text. And I hope you enjoy it. Okay. I'm going to pull this up on the screen. Yeah, like the story of Job, I see Tony wrote, right. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Daily judgment. Thus, and it's, okay, it's been a few weeks, but we can jump right in, because I think this intro should have, should have worked over here. Thus, man is judged, man, of course, not gender specific. Human beings are judged every day. From the earlier discussion will be understood that the, benef- the, the beneficence, in other words, the blessings allotted on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are elicited into Malchut of Atzilut, sorry, and elicited into Malchut of Atzilut can assume a variety of forms of beneficence when it reaches Asiya. So the pure, the pure chesed, beneficence is chesed, literally in the Hebrew, chesed, second of that last paragraph, second Hebrew word there is chesed. We're talking about chesed, pure love. Right, so the pure beneficence, the pure love and giving that is allotted to us, human beings, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, that, all of that is on a level of pure chesed. And it can take a variety of forms until it translates into our asiyah. Asiyah means our physical universe. Chesed in Atzilut, second to last line. Chesed in Atzilut, chesed of the highest realm, is still without any configuration of the manner of the flow of chesed of asiyah. It's pure love. It's not true love, it's pure love from the perspective of the, of the lover, of the giver. Let's continue. It is, absolute, it is abstract chesed at this stage, 282. It is abstract chesed, pure abstract chesed, which is subject to being fashioned through its investment in the worlds of Biyaz noted. In other words, it can take on a form, but at this stage, it's pure love. It's pure, unformed, unmitigated, unchanneled, unfiltered love. Through this investment... It becomes, in other words, through the investment, through the worlds and getting filtered, it then becomes physical chesed in this physical world in any number of ways. But as it starts off, it starts off as pure chesed, pure love. And then it filters into some love that can be tapped into and can be utilized or, or received. In a similar way, you know, another example that I didn't give before that I, was, that, that I just thought of now is when you give that child a hug. You want to give that hug? Oh, you want to give that hug really strong. But you know, as a little child, can't crush the, God forbid, right? You got, so you have to limit, even as you're hugging, you have to limit the hug. So, but I really want to hug you. Okay, but I have to like hold myself, I have to be very gentle. It's like, is it pure or is it filter? That's the same thing. So chesed, so here's the deal. Roshan and Yom Kippur, there is a pure emanation of divine kindness. Pure chesed. At that stage though, it's unfiltered, it's uncut, it's unchanneled. It could be any number of things or no number of things at that point because it's just, it's pure, it's divine chesed. Let's continue. 
This is the subject. Now we get to what happens every day. This is the subject of the daily judgment of beneficence destined for man. In other words, that's what happens every day. So on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we have the pure chesed. What happens every day? There's another judgment. That is, what is the, the actual manifestation going to look like? And he, he, he says that right here in, the, in the, the next line. What shall be the purpose of the beneficence and its flow into Asiya? That's the question that's answered every single day. What does that look like on the ground? What does it actually look like? Shall man be granted a rich measure of chesed in all three, children, health, and sustenance, or possibly a generous measure of two of them, or maybe even only one of them? There's three general categories, right? Children, i.e. family, health, health, and sustenance, money. So those are the three categories of blessings. So is this person... Is person A, right, are they going to receive today, right, today, are they going to receive God's pure, unfiltered chesed in three, all three channels, or maybe only two, or maybe only one of them? By the way, he'll talk about maybe even none. The ju- this judgment is determined on a daily basis by the heavenly court in the chamber of merit. The chamber of merit. Heichal hazchus. Chamber of merit. Meaning... In the chambers of Berea, that's the second of the spiritual worlds. At Silla, Berea, and Sirasia, it's the second of the spiritual worlds. If the verdict on a daily basis is that the beneficence of a lot of men in Rosh Hashanah and Kippur cannot possibly be called forth in all three areas of this man, but only two, for example, then the judgment continues. In other words, if so question number one is, there are three possibilities. <coughs> How many will it go? Let's say it's two. Great. Then the question continues. In what area shall the chesed be granted? Shall it be for children and health, that he have sturdy children and a healthy household? Shall it be for prosperity and health, that he enjoy wealth and vigor? So which two? So the first question is how many of the three? And then the question is, so if it's two, which two? If it's one, which one? And now we get to a story. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but now we get to a mind-blowing story of the Baal Shem Tov. Here he says, the prayer of a tzaddik can be effective. Right. Sometimes we wonder, like, what does a tzaddik do? What can a, tzaddik, a rebbe? What can a tzaddik or rebbe do? Here's the story of the Baal Shem Tov. Here, the prayer of a tzaddik can be effective, changing the decree, the daily decree, from one particular to another. In other words, from one channel to the other. This will help us understand the story that so that a tzaddik cannot create a flow, but a tzaddik can switch the tracks. Right? A tzaddik is like a conductor. Maybe not a conductor. Whoever is the one that switches the tracks of a train, tzaddik can switch the tracks. So this helps us understand the story that with the Baal Shem Tov. Someone repeatedly implored him to pray on his behalf that he be blessed with offspring. So here was a person who was married, didn't have any children, and he prayed, he begged the Baal Shem Tov to, get, to give him a blessing for children. This man was quite wealthy. The Baal Shem Tov made no reply to the man's pleas. He basically ignored him. The man and his wife exerted themselves greatly, begging the Baal Shem Tov to pray for them. The Baal Shem Tov sensed their deep sincerity. By the way, he didn't help them because he realized that it was no, it, that channel just... It was, it was blocked. It just wasn't possible. But the Baal Shem Tov sensed their deep sincerity and told them that if they have children, they will lose their wealth and become impoverished. The couple chose children in poverty, and it came to pass. That's a story that's told. story that's told in, uh, yeah, my Mariyad Marazaki. Okay, the story is told in the, in, the, in, the Hasidic, uh, in the Hasidic teachings, Hasidic lore, that this person, this couple was begged, was, was pleading to the Baal for a blessing for children. Baal sensed that he knew that he could see the spirit, he could see the tracks. The track was closed. It was blocked. It was blocked. Could it, the path for children was blocked. But they kept on begging. So he said, you know what? 
Okay, but if you want, if you want to open that track, then you're going to have to sacrifice another. Will you sacrifice your wealth for that? And they said yes. And so it happened. So what ha- like he explains it. What happened in effect was that the, benef- the beneficence elicited for that person through the heavenly court for wealth was altered by the Balshemtov at its source for children instead. The chesed allotted him was not for two forms, and prayer could change its form, children in place of wealth. In other words, there wasn't enough, or for whatever reason, not enough, but there, it wasn't destined to go to two places, only one. So he ultimately made them choose. He, he, he told them they, they can choose which one they want. But Rabbi, they actually got two of three because they had each other. Right, well, they had, the health, we don't know, but the other one is health. We don't, so we don't know about the health. But with, vis-a-vis children and wealth, the Baal Shem said, essentially, you're going to have to choose. Now, initially on high, it was destined wealth and not children. But they begged, they begged, they begged. He said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll smash through that one. But you were, we're steering the train there. It's, not gonna, it's no longer going to go down, down, the, down the wealth track. Is it legitimate to look at these things as sort of energies? Yeah, talk about for sure. Because, you know, when, it's, when you say heavenly court, you know, it's easy to, once again, get very literal. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, these are energies. Yeah. I don't think there's any gavel. No, no, no. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not a... It means that as the energy flows, I view it personally, because mm-hmm. I'm a Price, Price is Right fan, as the old Plinko boy. I don't know if you remember Plinko. Anybody Price, Price is Right fans? That was where you, they dropped the little, the little round disc. Yeah. And it went, it, it bounced along the thing. So like it hits this thing, it goes, you know, and $1,000 or zero. And, right, so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pathway. You even have that in, in like decision, make, decision trees, you know, where like yes or no and it branches off. So it's like the energy starts off unfiltered. It could be anything. And then the question is, okay, so one, two, or three. Let's go two. Which two? And then, but even after that, the question is, what does it actually look like on a daily basis? How revealed is it versus how conceptual is it? That, that's a, he didn't even say that yet, but that's another, another um, a, a checkpoint that happens. That's at top of 284. Take a look at top of 284. In addition, the daily judgment is to determine whether the person deserves that the chesed be elicited for him into this material universe, or perhaps on that specific day, his actions make him unworthy of, of the beneficence. In other words, will it actually translate into something tangible, or will it remain in a spiritual space? True, the chesed has been allotted him in Rosh Hashanah Kippur, but it can float to him in a spiritual form, not material, or maybe he'll get in the world to come altogether, and others maybe he'll get in the afterlife. What's so, the spiritual form? Spiritual form would be... Uh, that's a good question. How, right. What, so what does that do for us if it's spiritual form? I, right. That's, I guess that's the point, that we don't feel it. So you're saying, but what does that mean? I guess the soul on some level relates to it. Or, I mean, I gave the example before of something that even feels negative, but it's a spiritual form of blessing that's a little bit too high for the, for the, pocket, for the pocket to contain. So we don't... It's- it's something that we wouldn't recognize as chesed on that day. That's the bottom line. Something that we wouldn't recognize. What exactly it is, I don't know that I can you know, give you specifics on that, but it's something that we wouldn't recognize. So he said so far a few, just to summarize, a few different things. So Rosh Hashanah Kippur, it's the general, like the, the pure chesed is allotted. But then the question is, okay, what form does that take? How many forms does that take? And which specific ones? And how tangible, how revealed will those... Uh, acts of chesed actually or those forms of chesed take on we can now reconcile let's, let's conclude this chapter this, uh, um, this discourse actually 
Sorry for scrolling around and making everyone dizzy here online. The three categories. We can now reconcile the two Talmudic statements. Man's sustenance is determined on Rosh Hashanah Kippur, yet man is judged daily. So the Talmud says two contradictory points. One, that the judgment happens once a year. The other one, that it happens every day. Which one is it? Is it once a year or every day? And now we know the answer is both. Once a year, we have the pure chesed. Every day, it's about translating it. For determined means that the flow of supernal chesed was determined for the person between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur for the entire year. Yet, man is judged daily, meaning, so determined is general. But judged is more specific, meaning regarding the manner or the form of the chesed, how it will be translated into physical worldly terms that happens on a daily basis. Now we can understand, let's close it out with this last paragraph, now we can understand our daily prayers and requests for healing and prosperity. In other words, the question, we asked this a long time ago, why do you have to pray every day if you did it once a year? We're done. Why are we asking for health today on Sunday, May 1st? Why are we asking for health? Didn't we pray for it on Rosh Hashanah? And weren't we blessed? Don't we believe that we are blessed on Rosh Hashanah? Yes, but... How revealed do we want it today, right? Though these have been determined on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, nevertheless, this is only in the general chesed, or what I'm calling pure chesed. But it does not yet have a physical description. So every day we pray that the chesed allotted him and elicited from Malchut of Atzilut, from the highest of realms, be translated into these material concerns that we can actually um, appreciate. This will explain Rabbi Yeva's prayer over his meal, although it was already placed before him. We had a story about, before about a great tzaddik, a great from the Talmudic era, that used to, when he got a meal, he would pray for a meal, for food. And it's like, it's right in front of you. So why was he praying? For it is possible that it is not his. In other words, it's possible that the food might be sitting there, but that's not his original. How does he know that the food... Right? Is the, is, the, is the manifestation of the original chesed that was allotted. How does he know that the two are interconnected? So he prayed that the root of the chesed allotted to him be invested in this food. He prayed that the chesed be manifest in this food and this food not be something disconnected from his beneficence, from his chesed. That's a beautiful thing, by the way. Because how do we know that this... You see, we... Honestly, we have no clue when we go through life. The things that we think are good, they might be terrible. The things that we think are not good, they might be good. You understand what I'm saying? It's, there's a book, such a good book. It's called, I have it at home. It's a kid's book. It's really not a kid's book. It's such a good book. It's called, I, I don't remember. The concept is, this guy's invited to a birthday party, but the birth, it goes back and forth between good and bad. It's he's invited to a birthday party, yay! But the birthday party is far away. Boo. He takes a flight. Yay. But the plane has engine problem and starts to crash. Boo. He has a parachute. Yay. But his parachute gets caught up in a tree. Boo. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you realize that that's how life is. Like we cheer in the moment, but we have no idea what that's, how that story is going to play out. We've cheered. Bottom line, we've cheered for a lot of things that ended up bad for us. And we've booed a lot of things that ended up good for us. Because at the end of the day, our perception is a tiny, 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 tiny fragment of, in the moment of, of, of the larger picture. So what, and I just want to, I'm saying this for the last point. What was Rabbi Yeva saying? He was saying like this, I don't know the master plan. All I know is this, that I, I believe that God has allotted to me some chesed, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And I know that there's food in front of me. 
I want that this food should be blessed with the divine chesed and not be some other experience that's going to backfire against me. That's, that's not healthy for me. I want this food to be the manifestation. I'm praying that this be indeed the manifestation of divine kindness and this should be a realization of goodness and only blessing in my life. And we should all ask for such things. Yeah? When we get, take a new job, may this be the realization of divine kindness. Right? We buy a new car, we buy a new house, we get a new relationship, we take on a new activity, whatever it is, right? May this be the, the, the culmination of divine chesed, divine, divine kindness, and not anything else. And may it be so. So what did we learn today? In summary, we learned today about true love and pure love. True love is, like we said at the end, it's like the daily judgment. True love is a love that's cut down to the recipient. Pure love is a love that's coming from the giver's side, that's, that's unfiltered, uncut, just absolutely pure. On Rosh Hashanah, God gives us pure love. Every day we ask that God give us true love, the love that we want, that we need. And may it be so in our lives. And let us say, Amen. It's great to see you all. Thanks for be coming back to uh, Kabbalah and Coffee with me. It's great to study. Um, I wish everybody a Shavuot Tov. May this week be a week of pure love and true love, love that we can appreciate that we can feel, that we can integrate, that we can appreciate, that we can enjoy, maybe only for a blessing, for reveal blessings in our lives. Amen. All right, now, a quick announcement about this week. So, we are postponing, I believe, I believe, I'm going to confirm it soon, but I believe, and I, I, I mentioned it uh, um, anecdotally before, but I believe we are postponing Rosh Chodesh Society this Monday night due to um, scheduling conflicts so we are going to be postponing it to next Monday. Next Monday night, I believe. Um, so that is, that is the plan. Stay tuned. I'm going to be sending out an email a little bit later today with more information about that. One announcement. So that would have been tomorrow night. But again, I believe it's next uh, Monday, the, sec- the 9th of May. Next an- announcement is Tuesday night. This Tuesday night, we're doing our wine and cheese event with a local wine expert who's going to be taking us through a journey of multiple wines and wine tasting. It's a multi-sensory journey coupled with imported French wine and French cheese. So it's going to be really amazing. And I will be sharing some insights on the Kabbalah of wine, a tale of three generations, um, to, to understand a little bit of the mystical power of wine. Certainly wine has physical power, it has spiritual power as well. So all of that is going to happen Tuesday night right here in Town Jewish Academy at 7.30 p.m. In person, Jeff's place. Yeah. So join us for that. It's going to be amazing. Then next week, in addition to RCS, I believe, we will be having, we'll be starting our brand new JLI course called Beyond Right. It's an exploration of Jewish law in the context of Jewish ethics. I mentioned before about Perky Avot ethics. So we'll be looking at how ethics shape Jewish law in a very powerful way. It's approved for CLE courses, fully approved, and you will love it as well. So check, check, take a look at our website, intownjewishcademy.org, for all the exciting events coming up. All right. Thanks for joining our online crew, David and Joy and Tony and Toba and Susan and Adam and Maritza and Mariana. Great to see you guys. Hope you had a wonderful Pesach. Hope Passover was beautiful. And uh, it's beautiful. Thank you, Mariana. Thank you, Mariana. Thank you very much for a beautiful class. Regards to the Mishpacha. My best to everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Bye, Dr. Maxi. See you soon.
pack. So You're good. You're in. You're not going to get a book. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at intownjewishacademy.org and on YouTube at Intown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.